And now it's time for Talking Trade, sponsored by Michael Best Strategies and MMAC's World Trade Association. I'm Sandy Siegel, president of MEJ. Welcome to another episode of Talking Trade. I am Katie Henry, executive director of the MMAC World Trade Association. Um, thanks, Sandy. This morning we have, we're very happy to have Damian Felton joining us. He is the Associated Vice President at the Cohen Group. After that, he was with the U.S. Department of Commerce International Trade Administration for 16 years. Damian also had two postings at the U.S. Embassy in China. He's also a past advisory board member of the MMAC, World Trade Association. Damian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Katie and Sandy. It's great to be here. It's great being back in uh, in Milwaukee. So thanks for having me. Yeah, terrific to, to have you back in the trade community. So Damien, you and I talked about um, um, covering everybody's new trade acronym, OOFLAPA, um, just kind of rolls right, right off your tongue there. Um, but I want to give a little bit of background for um, some of our listeners that may be less familiar with some of the um, uh, new programs on, in trade and, and things to be careful about. So um, OOFLAPA, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and, and that was just enacted in December of last year in 21. So, so fairly new, but really um, significant given all the trade we do with China and, um, you know, the, and, and the impact it has. So, so I'm anxious to hear some of your strategies. Um, but the act is in general, um, you know, to try to strengthen our, our, our prohibition on the importation of goods that are, are from the Uyghur region. Um, and again, that can be pretty, um, pretty, pretty large and pretty um, difficult to get, wrap your heads around. So tell us a, a little bit more um, you know, about the act um, and, and perhaps um, in particular um, the rebuttal presumption or, or what I like to think of as you're guilty until you prove yourself in an innocent program. So tell us about the program and, and how it's impacting and, and people and, and why importers should be concerned if they're doing business in China. Sure. Thanks, Sandy. Um, yeah, I have never really adopted the UFLPA acronym. I, I still call it UFLPA, uh, a couple more syllables, but a little bit easier to say. Um, but I think about UFLPA in the context, uh, a little bit of the US-China trade relationship and kind of the monikered uh, trade war. Uh, businesses are certainly aware of the Section 301 tariffs impacting imports from China, um, uh, as well as kind of the increased focus recently on US export control um, laws on dual use items uh, going to China. Um, I'm glad we're talking about UFLPA because I don't think enough SMEs in particular are focused on the implications of this new tool and how it will impact their, uh, their supply chains. Um, when I talk with companies, I, I kind of boringly, and this might seem elementary, I go back to kind of the beginning. Um, the U.S. has maintained an import ban on items made with forced labor wholly or in part dating back all the way to uh, essentially 1930 and a little bit before that, but in uh, the Tariff Act of 1930, Section 307 um, prohibited the importation of items made with forced labor. However, under Section 307, there was this loophole that allowed items to be imported that were made with forced labor if there wasn't sufficient quantities to satisfy domestic consumption or demand. 
Um, this changed decades, decades, decades later in 2016 when Congress removed the consumptive demand clause from Section 307 of the Tariff Act. So the loophole was closed. Um, kind of just as like an anecdote, the U.S. remains the only country that enforces uh, an import ban on forced labor without this consumptive demand loophole. The EU is considering similar legislation now, um, but the U.S. is kind of at the vanguard of this. So after 2016, CBP started issuing um, what are called withhold release orders, as, as you're well aware. And these are letters to ports instructing them not to allow entry of, of certain items focused on bad actor companies and then eventually certain products. Um, and that was kind of the next iteration of, of how uh, the country, the United States and CBP used uh, to, to kind of counteract forced labor. Um, there were uh, WROs and there are WROs on uh, related to China on cotton, tomatoes and silica based products. Um, but outside of these specific products, it's hard for CBP to figure out where forced labor is used in the production of imported goods. And this is where UFLPA comes into play. And as you mentioned, Sandy, back in December of 21, the law came into place and it creates the presumption that any goods manufactured wholly or in part, and I'm going to repeat that I think many times uh, over the next couple of minutes, coming from Xinjiang, China, which is a, a large uh, autonomous region within China, or a company that is named under the UFLPA entity list. So if the item comes from Xinjiang or is on this uh, entity list, the, 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 uh, the item that's coming that's being imported is produced or, or somehow affiliated with an entity listed, there is the now rebuttable presumption, you're guilty in, until proven innocent that these items were made with forced labor and because of that loophole that was closed under Section 307, um, they are now banned from importation uh, into the United States. Um, the, the, just as a quick aside, you know, this really stems from the social programs um, that China is targeting Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region that give rise to forced labor. Um, there was the operative provision of this of this law that was signed in 21, December of 21, came into effect this past June. And so again, items originating wholly or in part from Xinjiang will be denied entry unless there's clear and convincing evidence um, that they were not made with forced labor. And clear and convincing evidence is a, is a, is a very high evidentiary bar. Um, and so items from that region or from certain entities that are on a list are subject to import detention now. Damien, have you ever had any clients whose goods have been stopped? Uh, that's a great question. And, and kind of following uh, the operative provision coming into, into effect on June 22, just a couple of months ago, a lot of people were kind of interested to understand what this would mean. But unfortunately, CBP detentions are not made public. So it's hard for us to know outside of anecdotal reports um, what items have actually been stopped or detained. So far, there have been reports on certain shipments of solar panels uh, and some, uh, I think, men's apparel and shirts being detained. Um, but unlike the Section 301 tariffs, I would just kind of caution, even though um, there wasn't a big bang um, per se uh, coming after the, the implementation, in June, unlike the 301 tariffs where, where the impacts were, were more immediate, I think the impacts of UFLPA will increase over time. 
Uh, CBP has, has signaled that it will enforce UFLPA proportionate to its current capabilities is, is kind of the language that they've used in conferences. CBP's capabilities will increase over time with additional funding and expertise. Um, CBP currently has capabilities with the existing WROs on tomatoes, cotton, textiles, and apparel, and silica-based products. And so that's what companies have been really focusing in on of late. But in the future, once CBP gets more expertise and funding, I think CBP is logically going to look towards a list that the Department of Labor produces annually that itemizes the products that are known to be made with forced labor on a country-by-country -country basis. Um, and I just want to maybe add an, an additional consideration. Um, uh, what makes UFLPA a little bit uh, unique uh, from, from other tools like export controls or, or Section 301? It's that wholly or in part in that language. That means the entire supply chain from the upstream raw material all the way down to the finished good and all the manufacturing steps and material, uh, material inputs along the way. So basically the entire supply chain needs to be considered under UFLPA, not just uh, you know, the finished good when it comes to a tariff for the most part. Um, and it's important to note that Xinjiang is an attractive place for Chinese companies to set up because of relatively cheap energy pricing. So processing of raw materials, uh, a lot of that is done there, like silica, quartz, aluminum, uh, chemicals, the processing is, is really energy intensive. So going back to the scope language within UFLPA, products made wholly or in part, the impact of UFLPA, I think, will increase over time as CBP gets more funding and they can look into uh, products uh, outside of those that they have traditionally looked at. Uh, absolutely. And I'll comment, Katie, you know, from a practical side as well. We have not seen any holds um, on, on the UFLPA um, with our importers. I am aware of some through colleagues of ours. Um, and again, the, the whole or in part is, is the key here because it really drills you know, all the way back. And one of the um, anecdotes that were shared with me and the examples was some furniture that was held because of the fabric used in the upholstery and, you know, potential cotton that, that was from the region. And, um, you know, on the forwarder side, I can tell you, it gets very expensive to have your goods held and have that 30-day window to prove yourself innocent, um, be able to get all the information out of China, if you can get all the information. Um, and meanwhile, your goods are are going into storage or have to be unloaded, et cetera. Um, finding warehouse space for these goods has been a challenge um, for the forwarders. So, you know, there's there's all the the fallout um, and the expense if you're able to do that um, and to get the goods imported. Briefly, Damien, any advice? And, and on the practical side, you know, is China cooperating when when and if you have to get that information is, you know, with the, with their awareness raised, um, you know, when when you have goods held, um, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, Sandy, you raise a, a good point that goes to what documentation the U.S. companies need. Um, you know, first, if an, if an entry is detained, um, a company is going to need to decide whether to argue that the item is outside of the scope. 
um, essentially that the product is, uh, is not from Xinjiang and there's no supply chain nexus to Xinjiang or the, um, the, the companies that help produce it are not on the entity list. Um, if the item is coming from Xinjiang, they're going to have to demonstrate with clear and convincing evidence that there was no forced labor. And as I mentioned, that's a very high bar. Um, I think companies have focused on trying to get affidavits from their suppliers. While I don't think that is harmful in any way uh, for those suppliers who are actually willing to provide them, I, I don't believe from what I've been reading and, and listening and, and learning, I don't believe that that will be enough to show that items aren't from Xinjiang, um, let alone uh, that they're not made with forced labor, right? And that goes back to that, that question that companies are going to need to make uh, that that decision um, if items are detained. So they're gonna need to demonstrate companies end-to-end uh, -end sourcing of all of the components and parts and their origin. And this will require a big shift in relationship that companies and SMEs have with their suppliers in China. And you gotta go beyond the tier one and the tier two. Um, and you're still responsible as an importer um, to go much further upstream all the way to the raw material. And if suppliers aren't willing to tell you, um, this is a business risk that companies, uh, U.S. companies, and in particular SMEs, you know, aren't necessarily used to taking on, and that's something that they're going to need to consider. Um, in China, I will just uh, maybe end with, uh, th there are provisions within the Chinese law, such as the anti-foreign sanctions law, which is a tool to try to get Chinese companies not to comply with foreign sanctions. And so there will be uh, some reluctance from Chinese companies to, per to participate in the documentation process with regard to UFLPA. And this is going to be an increased business risk for, for U.S. companies. Right. Wow. Interesting. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I, I'd love to continue the dialogue. Um, Katie, can you quickly share uh, some up an upcoming program that will include Damien, which I'm sure everyone's um, interested in? Yeah, so if anyone's interested in continuing this conversation, Damien is going to be presenting at the MMAC World Trade Association Global Business Series um, beginning October 21st, and I believe I think you're the second or third Wednesday. It's a series of six weeks every Wednesday over the lunch hour, and Damien will be presenting. So I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with you, and thanks so much for joining us today, Damien. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you guys. Terrific. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us on another episode of Talking Trade. You've been listening to Talking Trade, sponsored by Michael Best Strategies and MMAC's World Trade Association.